One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. These days, having versatile clothing you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes all sorts of versatile any weather staples hoodies, jackets, and more. Whether you're buying a gift or stocking your closet, you'll find just what you need. And it's all made right here in the USA. Find your new wardrobe staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code AnyStyle24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com, promo code AnyStyle24. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know you can get a 20% discounted subscription to New Scientist. This gets you access to all our articles plus audio versions of our stories in our app. To get your discount, go to newscientist.com slash pod20 and use the code pod20. That gets you the 20% discount. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show running down the five most fascinating science stories in the world this week. I'm your host, Penny Sarchet. And I'm your other host, Timothy Revel. This week, we're discussing the first detection of an isolated black hole and an incredible operation using electrodes that has helped three men to overcome paralysis from the waist down to be able to walk again. Plus, we've got an intriguing look at a French cave's former Neanderthal and modern human inhabitants, and a roundup of everything that's happening right now with developing pig organs for transplants into people. All that, plus how your dog's poo may be harming local wildlife. What a selection. So to talk us through it all, we're joined by New Scientist reporters Michael LePage, Chen Lee and Claire Wilson. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi. Now, I'm so pleased this week that we're talking about big breakthroughs in two areas of biomedical science that we've been watching just very closely at New Scientist for decades. And the first of those is restoring mobility to people with spinal cord injuries. This week, we had the news that an operation has enabled three men who are paralysed from the waist down to each slowly walk with the help of a frame. Claire, how have they managed this? Right. Well, this approach involves implanting electrodes low down on people's spines to artificially stimulate the nerves to the legs and the back that normally trigger movement patterns like taking steps. Now, in most of us, these nerves are normally activated by signals coming down the spine from the brain when we take a decision to start walking. Now, in these people, they all had severe spinal cord injuries. They were three men who had been in motorbike crashes, and this is one of the biggest causes of this type of injury, sadly. Not all of them had their spinal cord completely severed. That actually is quite a rare thing to happen. It's usually a kind of a a crushing injury. But all of them had too few intact nerves remaining to produce any kind of movement or sensation. So they were all classed before as having complete paralysis. So, you know, they couldn't twitch a toe. From the waist down. So complete from the waist down. That's right. Yes. And and how well did the treatment work then? Well, that is the amazing thing. So these researchers who are based in Lausanne, Switzerland, they found that as soon as people woke up after the operation, when they activated the electrodes for each leg, one at a time, they saw a stepping motion. So they really got, you know, the combination of nerves right to achieve that. Um, one of the patients was uh, present at a press conference and he said, you know, it just made him feel so emotional that first time he saw 
his legs moving again. So he, he'd been in a wheelchair for four years at that point. So you, you can imagine how he felt. We've got a lovely video of him on our website. It actually made me quite emotional to see it too. Until that point, I had only ever heard him speak at the press conference. I hadn't seen him. So it was a, a lovely thing to watch. Yeah, I, I have to say, I found the video really touching too. Um, we'll link to it in our show notes. And so after the operation, did this man just get up and walk? No, no. So to be clear, it did take three or four months of training of practice and physio for the movements to become natural enough for him to be able to walk easily and properly. And he's still, you know, taking quite quite slow steps using this walking frame, but it allows him to walk. It was quite intense rehabilitation, you know, practicing it every day. And as you said, you know, he does have to use this frame for balance and, and to support his body weight as well. And, and, and But just being able for him to walk along the street, that is such a major advance for him. It sounds so significant, doesn't it? And and when you were first looking into this story, you were pretty sceptical <laughs> of, of whether this was really the advance, yes. um, you know, that it sounded like. Uh, yes. Why was that? Well, I mean, we have seen a lot of work in this field before. And sometimes the results, they can sound better than they really are. But in previous approaches, the electrical stimulation has not been enough to to activate this kind of automatic stepping motions just by giving the nerves a buzz. So previously, the people had to have enough intact nerves remaining that they did still have some natural leg movements, too weak to properly walk, but there was some natural movement there. And in in that previous work, those electrodes just merely amplified what was there. So the new thing about this week's results is that because the electrodes have been improved, they can help people who have this complete paralysis. They actually produce the movements by stimulating precise patterns and sequences of the nerves that come out of the spinal cord. So it's it's really kind of taken over the way the body naturally does that. And that's why it starts working straight away. And in fact, the surgeons, they actually test out that it's working during the operation while the patient is still asleep under the anaesthetic. Well, it's amazing to think, you know, you're just plugging into to the body system there. I, I suppose it, we're probably still a long way from seeing this as a, being a sort of widespread treatment for anyone with this problem. Yes, yes, I'm afraid so. So, so far, it has only been tested on three people. And now it has worked well on all three. And obviously, that that's really great news. Um, But it must be tested in larger groups of people in randomised trials before it could be used more widely. And one thing I was just wondering, because we've covered so many things similar to this before, isn't there a problem about putting electrodes in the body? Don't they stop sort of working over time? Well, these kind of electrodes have been used before in people who have um, ongoing severe pain that cannot be relieved by pain-killing drugs. Um, So you do sometimes see scarring around the electrodes uh, when it's used in that setting, but it's actually not that common. Uh, You might be thinking of when they put electrodes into the brain, Mm, which is a little bit different, and you do get special immune cells in the brain kind of covering up the electrodes. But they're not going inside the spinal cord. They're going kind of on the outside of the spinal cord in this case. So it's not necessarily going to happen that they're all going to get scarred over. But of course, it's so new. These are a new type of electrode. They are larger than the previous kind that was used for pain relief. They have been modified. So we can't know. We cannot know for sure how long this these amazing results will last. And so that is another reason for caution. Nonetheless, still really promising. Yes, absolutely. 
Next up, we've got news of the first isolated black hole ever detected. So this sounds super exciting, uh, but what actually is an isolated black hole? So isolated black holes are sort of what they sound like, black holes on their own. And they form when certain stars that aren't near any other stars explode in a supernova. So you have these isolated stars that are just sort of hanging out in a pocket of the universe by themselves. Those actually aren't that rare. There are millions of them, which means that when you do the calculations, well, you'd imagine that there are plenty of isolated black holes too. But until now, we've not actually seen one. So um, why is that? Is it the fact that they're out there on their own that makes it harder to detect them? Yeah, exactly. So the strange nature of black holes means that the best way to spot them is for looking for their interactions with nearby stars. So that often produces like these quite violent plumes of gas or radiation, or you can see the way that they move. But obviously that doesn't work if you've just got a lonely, isolated black hole. So what's changed is that Researchers have used a handy um, little phenomenon called microlensing to get around this and spot an isolated black hole that's about 5,000 light years away in the Sagittarius constellation. So this microlensing phenomenon, it occurs when the gravity from massive objects like black holes bends and magnifies the light of stars that they pass in front of, albeit at quite a big distance. So that sounds, you know, micro, sounds like a really difficult thing to measure from thousands of light years away. Yeah, it is really difficult. The the sort of brightening and bending of light being detected is absolutely tiny. So the effect that the team spotted is the equivalent of looking for a 25 millimeter difference from 2,500 kilometers away. So absolutely <laughs> minuscule. But luckily, the Hubble Space Telescope, which is a telescope that sits in space orbiting Earth, is extremely accurate. And it can, you know, it can eat tiny little differences like this for breakfast. <laughs> so how did they find this particular black hole then? So it started in around 2011, and it was discovered that a star appeared to be growing much brighter than normal. And then they observed this over a period of about seven years using the Hubble Space Telescope to get loads more detailed readings. And then they were able to calculate the mass of whatever this mystery thing bending the star's light was and whether it was making it appear brighter. And after performing these calculations, they found that the most likely culprit was an object that gave off no light, but had a mass seven times that of our sun. And the likely culprit in that situation is an isolated black hole. Yeah, it's got black hole written all over it, hasn't it? (laughs) So is this the first one that we've ever found then? So there are other candidates that may have been like technically spotted earlier, but this is by far the most concrete observation of one yet. Let's take a quick break. First, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has an extensive library of interactive courses exploring things like the science of infinity, casino probability, and there's even a course on cryptocurrency. If you enjoyed our feature about black holes and want to learn more about them, check out Brilliant's astrophysics course. It'll teach you about a world of cosmic wonders from star life cycles and supernovae to the fate of the universe. Also, coming up, we'll be talking about breakthroughs in pig organ transplants, which we can thank gene editing for. If you want to find out more about understanding the genome, head over to Brilliant's computational biology course. Whether you're a beginner or advanced, Brilliant is a fun way to learn real problem solving by doing it yourself. You can get started learning on Brilliant today for free and the first 200 listeners to sign up using our special link will get 20% off unlimited access to all the courses on Brilliant for a whole year. That link is brilliant.org slash new scientist. We'll pop a link in the show notes. 
Also, I wanted to let you know that New Scientist Live is going hybrid with a live in-person event in Manchester in the UK that you can also enjoy from the comfort of your own home. From the 12th to the 14th of March, here our expert speakers discuss their transformative research on subjects from the mysteries of the cosmos to the intricacies of the human body and brain, while also enjoying the many fascinating interactive exhibits, workshops, and feature areas on the festival floor. Early bird tickets are selling out fast and we only have a limited number left. Book today to get the discount and avoid disappointment. That link is newscientist.com slash Manchester and we'll pop a link to that in our show notes as well. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic tees, soft, structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim, all made right here in the USA with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code GRATEFULAG23. Next up, we've got a snapshot of the ancient human housing market in France 54,000 years ago. (laughs) It sort of feels like you're about to say, and we've got a nice hominin couple from the city who would like to move (laughs) out for a bit of space close to some schools. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) What are you actually talking about, Penny? Um, Yeah, it's not a million miles off, so um, I love this. A team excavating a site overlooking the Rhone Valley in France has found evidence that a small group of modern humans lived in a cave there long before modern humans really became established in Europe, and that Neanderthals have been living in that same cave like less than a year before. So it's a real insight into who was occupying this cave quite a long time ago. Yeah, it's like a hot piece of real estate. So yeah, exactly. What, what's actually going on? Yeah, so there's been a team excavating this site. It's called Grotte Mandrin since 1990. So, you know, decades of research here. It's this small cave on a hill and there are loads of remains and artifacts in there, including teeth from at least seven ancient humans. And so now using dating techniques and looking at these artifacts, the team have drawn up a timeline for who lived in this cave and and when. And they've found that the earliest inhabitants were Neanderthals, which makes sense because Neanderthals lived in Europe for hundreds of thousands of years and were there before we were. And Neanderthals occupied this cave from more than 80,000 years ago until about 54,000 years ago. But then in the space of a year or less, modern humans seem to have moved in. So that that seems really precise. Aren't these dating techniques normally there's like a long, like really quite big error bars in them. So how are they able to narrow it down just to a year or two? Yeah, it's really cool, isn't it? Because a lot a lot of the dating techniques you use on kind of human remains, you know, they'll give you a range of thousands of years. But they came to this conclusion by looking at the soot left behind by the last Neanderthal fire and the first modern human fire in oh, this wow. cave. And so layers of the mineral calcite formed on top of this soot and, and that can be dated more precisely. And, and that's where this particular theory comes from. 
So is this where the timeline ends or do we know a bit more about this location? Yeah, so it continues. Um, The modern humans that moved into this cave, they seem to survive in the area for only about 40 years, after which Neanderthals moved back into the cave again. And then ultimately modern humans came back around 44,100 years ago. Oh, really interesting. So it's like this cave is changing hands a few yeah. times. <laughs> so how does that fit with our understanding of how Homo sapiens moved into Europe? Yeah, so this later period when the modern humans came back to the cave, that's uh, roughly around the time that we know modern humans really made significant inroads into Europe um, about 44,000 years ago. So the intriguing thing is, you know, what happened 10,000 years earlier when this small group of modern humans popped in for a bit. And that adds to some previous evidence that our species or modern humans made several less successful, unsuccessful incursions into Europe before they really sort of took the continent. So do we have any idea why that earlier group of modern humans, they only hung around for about 40 years here? Yeah, a bit poignant, really. Um, As our writer Michael Marshall put it, um, they may have just been too few to survive on their own. Apparently, we know that small groups moving into new areas often didn't make it. Oh, that's really tragic. Mm. So we know that modern humans uh, in the past have interbred with Neanderthals. Is there any evidence of mixing like that here? So they couldn't find any. I mean, so one of the things they looked for was signs of cultural exchange. So, you know, did the artifacts made by one type of human change after there'd been kind of a change in hands of the ownership of the cave? But they they couldn't find any sign of of copying each other's artifacts. But the researchers do think it's very likely that they will have met. That's all we know at this point. And and there you have it, a a snapshot of French real estate records from 54,000 years ago. Amazing. Now it's time for the second of those big biomedical breakthroughs, and this one is about genetically modified pig organs for transplants. So it seems like we've had a real flurry of landmarks in attempt to use these recently. Yeah, so last year, two separate teams in the US transplanted pig kidneys into brain-dead people for a few days. And then in January, there was the huge news that a pig heart was transplanted into 57-year-old David Bennett, who is still slowly recovering. So, Michael, the idea of transplanting animal organs into people is is a really old one. Why are we suddenly hearing so much about it now? So the short answer is CRISPR. Uh, Xenotransplantation, as you say, is actually a really old idea. So the, the first serious attempts were made in the 1960s. And in fact, in 1963, one woman survived for nine months after getting a transplant of a chimpanzee kidney. But then, sadly, she just suddenly dropped dead after mm. after that time. But what doctors gradually realise is that we can't use our close ape cousins as a source of organs. Is that because of ethical issues, presumably? I think that's a very good one, but there there are lots of other reasons too. So, for instance, there are not that many chimpanzees left in the world, and they take a very long time to grow up and reach adulthood. So researchers have sort of settled in pigs as an alternative because you can breed lots of them and they grow very fast. The problem is if you stick an organ from a pig inside a person, the immune system attacks it almost instantly. So is this where the genetic modification comes in? You're tweaking the pigs in some way to make them a better fit for potential organ donation? Exactly. And people have been working on this for decades, but making the kind of precise genetic changes used to be very difficult and expensive. So progress was really slow. But then in 2012, along came the CRISPR genome editing technique, which is dramatically speeding things up. So in the past few years, there are at least four groups around the world have created pigs with a dozen or so genetic changes. And these pigs are now starting to become available to surgeons, which is why the the heart transplant could take place. 
So are these modified pigs now completely compatible with humans? Uh, probably not. So the, the, the expectation is that they will still be rejected faster than, than human organs. Uh, and of course, specific organs may need tweaking in, in certain ways. If you're transporting kidneys, so they might need extra changes. But even if they only survive a year or so, that could still be really valuable. Lots of people on the transplant lists die while they're waiting for an organ. So these organs could be a bridging solution to fill that gap. But we're not going to know for sure how long pig organs will last in people until we start proper trials, and those trials haven't begun yet. The The heart transplant was just a last resort, not part of a trial. So do we know when those proper trials will begin? <laughs> so in the US, as teams have got stuck in a bit of a catch-22 situation, so the regulator, the FDA, wants them to show that these pig organs can survive at least a year in animals such as baboons before they allow trials to go ahead. The thing is, these pig organs are designed to be compatible with humans, not baboons, <laughs> so they're not usually lasting that long. So it's, it's not quite clear when the, when the trials will begin. So that, that's the situation in the US, but what about outside the US? Anyone making attempts there? Yes, so this week I reported that there's a team in China that hopes to transplant pig hearts or livers into people later this year. This team is also still waiting for the go-ahead from the regulators in China, but they have achieved one notable first – Last year, they were the first to complete a human trial of skin grafts from modified pigs as a temporary cover for burns. Wow. So we've got all these teams then vying to be the first to carry out these human trials. Do you think this is a turning point for xenotransplantation? Is, is it finally going to become a reality and start saving lives? Yes, I think there's really every reason to be optimistic. The thing is, we can just keep modifying these pigs to make them more and more compatible with us. So one of the people I spoke to was David Cooper at Harvard, who's arguably the world's leading expert on xenotransplantation. Uh, he thinks that we're going to get to the point where these pigs become so compatible with us that organ recipients do not even need to take anti-rejection drugs. That's incredible to think about, isn't it? You know, the problem with these anti-rejection drugs, I mean, there are several, you're, you're more vulnerable to infections and cancer, you have to take these drugs for a very long time. It's really life-changing if, if we can get rid of them. Exactly. And Cooper also pointed out that xenotransplantation is not just about organs like the heart and the, the kidneys. Uh, so we could also use cells from these pigs to replace the insulin producing cells that are missing in people with diabetes. We could replace the brain cells whose loss causes Parkinson's. We could even generate red blood cells for transfusions, etc, uh, etc. Et so that the potential is really huge. And last but not least... Well, maybe, maybe it is least in this case. We're <laughs> talking about dog poo. So specifically, the effects that dog poo may have on wildlife. Chen, we've given you this delightful assignment this week to write about. So what's the impact here? Yeah, so it actually turns out taking your dog for a walk in your local nature reserve could actually harm the local biodiversity by bringing too much excess phosphorus and nitrogen from their poo and wee. This is according to researchers at Ghent University in Belgium who have calculated the fertilisation effect of dog waste on nature reserves for the first time. This is very much an experiment I would be too squeamish to do. Um, <laughs> how exactly do you study something like this? Well, it wasn't actually too bad. So the researchers did this by counting the number of people accompanied by dogs who visited nature reserves near Ghent. And from that, the team estimated how much nitrogen and phosphorus from their waste would be left behind. 
by our furry companions. <laughs> this also is assuming that owners didn't pick up after their pets and spent between 30 minutes to an hour per visit. Okay, so it feels like it's quite back of the envelope, rough estimation, but perhaps fairly representative of the overall situation. What, what did they actually find? Yeah, so they estimate that dogs leave around 5 kilograms of excess phosphorus and 11 kilograms of excess nitrogen per hectare per year in these suburban nature reserves. I think it's important to note that these are excess amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus. There are, of course, lots of wildlife that live in these nature reserves that also pee and poo there, but... (laughs) These animals are part of the nature's ecosystems, so they're not adding anything extra to the environment. So what might the impact be then of all of this extra nitrogen and phosphorus? Yeah, so these figures are quite significant, according to Peter Dufresne, the lead researcher who I spoke to about the research. In fact, 11 kilograms of nitrogen is over 50% of the nitrogen that comes into these environments from the atmosphere via rainfall. And phosphorus and nitrogen are both very common components of fertilisers, which you may think helps plants to grow, but too much of it can actually lead to loss of plant biodiversity and habitat degradation. Uh, Dufresne also said that he'd expect similar results across Europe because of comparable levels of dog ownership in many European countries. And this study isn't the sort of only documented negative impact of, of dogs on nature, is it? Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, though. So back in 2007, we covered a paper from Australia that showed birds are quite easily stressed and scared away by dogs. The paper actually found that areas of woodland in Australia that are frequently used by dog walkers experience a 35% reduction in bird diversity and 40% reduction in the number of overall birds. Wow, that's really striking. I know, it's quite sad, isn't it? And Mm. in a more recent 2017 study, researchers found that domestic dogs have contributed to at least 11 vertebrate extinctions and are a potential risk to 188 threatened species across the world, which is quite alarming, actually. And most this is mostly through dogs predating these animals, but also through disease transmission and disturbance. Oh, this all sounds really serious. I feel like I set this up with a tad too much whimsy at the beginning of this uh, section. Um, is there something that dogs, and I guess more importantly, their owners could do to improve the situation a little bit? Yeah, definitely. And just to be clear, dogs are definitely not the villains. And I'm definitely not telling you to stop taking your dogs on walks. But I do think at the very least, dog owners should be a bit more aware of the inadvertent impacts their dogs can have when they're in nature. And importantly, follow the guidelines that are in place wherever you are. For example, in the UK, between the beginning of March and the end of July, you must keep your dog on a lead if you're taking them on a walk on open access land, which includes a lot of the countryside, to protect birds that nest on the ground in the spring and summer. Uh, Many nature reserves will also have areas that are dog-free or require your dog to be leashed. There's definitely a reason for those restrictions, so you should definitely follow them. And also, don't forget to pick up your dog's poo. Hear, hear. That's all for this week. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed our show, please recommend us to your friends, subscribe and leave us a review. Yes, and remember that 20% subscription discount you can get at newscientist.com slash pod 20. 
Thanks to our guests this week, Michael LePage, Chen Li, and Claire Wilson. We're back next week. We'll see you then. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.